The rest of you will want to get out your sermon outline. We are in Luke chapter 1 today, Zechariah's song. We're at the end of Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79, as we go through the songs of Christmas. Starting at verse 67, and this is speaking about the father of John the Baptist. That's who Zechariah is. And it says, listen carefully as this is God's word. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you this morning and we thank you for giving us your word and for making us your people. And Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we pray, uh, as always, that you would give us understanding, that we would understand what you are telling us this morning by your word and by your spirit. Help us to see Jesus this morning and help us to show him to others. For this, we need your grace and by your spirit, give that to each one of us this morning, in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen, amen. Well, it is the Christmas season and the Christmas movies are coming out and they're on TV. All the classics are coming. And one of my favorites is the movie Miracle on 34th Street. And there's been three editions of this movie, but of course the first one is the best. It's a Christmas classic, the 1947 uh, novel that became a movie the same year, and it earned the author an Academy Award for the Best Original Story. The film itself was nominated for Best Picture, and Edmund Gwynn, who played Kris Kringle, won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. But who could ever forget the real star of the movie, the child actor Natalie Wood? who won the hearts of the audience as the little girl, Susan Walker, whose doubt in the existence of Santa Claus is transformed by her association with Edmund Gwynn's Kris Kringle. Miracle on 34th Street stands beside It's a Wonderful Life as one of the two most enduring of American 
holiday movies. Or so says Frank Beaver, who's a professor of film and video studies at the University of Michigan. You didn't know you could major in video studies. Some of you have already started majoring in video studies. But apparently there's, there's a career in here somewhere. As with Frank Capra's movie, It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street draws its continuing appeal by reaffirming the idea of faith in a modern, often cynical world. Now, reaffirming faith in a modern, cynical world is somewhat what our business is about as believers. Now, we're not talking about faith in St. Nicholas or Father Christmas or Santa Claus or Kris Kringle or whatever you want to call them. But we're talking about the wonderful truth of the almighty God of the universe who's come to earth as a baby in a manger. And the reality is there are so many today who simply don't buy it. Or at least they seem unmoved by the reality of Christmas and how they live their lives. And the net effect of a lack of faith in Christ is to turn off the color of life, to become somewhat like Susan Walker in Miracle on 34th Street, whose childhood was expressionless and emotionless and hopeless. And unbelief turns off the color and turns down the sound of life as it was meant to be lived. But faith in Christ and faith in the God who changes things, who interrupts our lives uh, with the glorious news of salvation by faith and repentance in Christ, turns the sound back on. It lights up our soul, and as we'll see in today's passage, it causes mute men, men who can't speak, it causes them to sing. We have to just ask Zechariah. In today's passage, the Song of Zechariah, it's really a Holy Spirit-inspired praise and prophecy, and there's enough gospel here to turn on the lights in our life. Before we go too far, very quickly, I want to go over some of the background because we're just dipping into uh, Luke for a few weeks. Uh, we need to understand what's going on. I encourage you to read along uh, the, during the week and uh, as we prepare for Christmas. We're going to be mostly in uh, Luke 1 and 2 for this season, and that would be a really good thing to read uh, leading up to the uh, Christmas holiday. So what is Luke about? Luke is the author of the book. Uh, it's the third gospel. He's also the author of the book of Acts, written as chapters 1 and 2 in the story of Christ and his church. In these two books, you see that Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, even Paul. And since he's given more of the New Testament to us, it would be helpful for us to understand the big picture. And so to sum up the Gospel of Luke, it is about the person of Jesus and the nature of God's work through Jesus to deliver us from sin that takes center stage. It shows us the sovereign plan of God, the Savior through whom that plan takes place, the Gospel message that explains that plan, that all of it is true, and that everyone who places their faith in Christ can rest confidently in that fact. And the more that we examine the people in this book, the more we see they're just like us. They have the same problems, the same attitudes, the same concerns about money, sin, anxiety, 
hope, rejection, pride, humility, and questions about God. And it mirrors the same questions that we face today. And Luke shows us how Jesus addressed those questions. He makes it clear we can know the answers by coming to know Christ, who is truth incarnate, truth in the flesh. And in such an age as ours where people struggle for identity and worth, what better message can there be than you can know God and share in his promises? And that's what the book of Luke is about, people coming to know Christ. So let's turn to the story of Zechariah and his song on the occasion of the birth of his son. And of course, his son would grow up to be John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an extremely important figure in the New Testament because even though he appears in the New Testament, he's really the last Old Testament prophet. To understand John the Baptist, you have to understand he's really the last Old Testament prophet. And so a little background, we're gonna go up a little bit earlier in Luke. And is it warm in here? I'm gonna take this off. It's a warm day. So I'm just gonna put that there. The, uh, so let's go back and look uh, a little bit earlier in Luke, starting with verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. If you remember, even earlier in the story, Zechariah doubted the angel Gabriel when he came to him. So he was struck mute. And uh, so he couldn't speak. So aren't you glad God doesn't strike you mute every time you doubt him. It'd be a very quiet worship service. But God is gracious to us. So, verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then jumping down to verse 80, the last verse of chapter 1. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So we can get to know John better by asking a couple of quick questions. And the first one that seems to be important in this passage is what is his name? What is his name? And hopefully that's the first blank there in your outline. It's time for John to be born to Elizabeth. Zechariah was there. Most likely Mary was there as well. And no doubt Elizabeth thought of Sarah, who is the matriarch of Israel, who also had a son in her old age. And the neighbors and relatives came around and they shared in the joy, fulfilling uh, the earlier words of the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter one, verse 14, where he told them, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And everyone assumed he would be named Zechariah after his father, 
but Elizabeth insists that his name is John, which means God is gracious. Now, the relatives didn't understand. Maybe despite the fact that she just had a baby, Elizabeth's getting senile. This just wasn't done. Firstborn sons are named after the father. And they had no idea that the name wasn't Elizabeth's idea, but had been specified by the angel Gabriel. And I'm sure that Elizabeth and Mary had talked at some length about the divinely given names of their sons. Anyway, the relatives go to Zechariah because they think that essentially Elizabeth has lost it. But Zechariah shocks the family by writing down, remember, he doubted the angel, so he couldn't speak, so he wrote down, his name is John. And instantly he's able to speak again and begins praising God. Now why the name John? As I told you, John means God is gracious or the Lord has given grace. And by choosing this non-family name, God is indicating that this child's mission and power would come from outside the family outside the normal order of things, outside all of the family expectations. He was going to be extraordinary, not filled with natural talent, but with supernatural gifts. And the name John was meant to stir up the spiritual imagination. If you think about it, there's a really unusual thing happening here. First of all, this really old woman has a baby long after she's supposed to be able to. Her husband, the priest, is struck speechless after serving in the temple. She spent the last three months hanging out with this 13-year-old unwed pregnant teenager. She finally has the baby, and they pick a name for its spiritual meaning, not its family connections. And then the husband starts speaking and singing. And I think everyone must have stepped back and just said, whoa, what's going on here? The text says something very similar to that happened. Verse 66, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And I think that's the next big question. What will he be like? What will he be like? The Bible only devotes one sentence, verse 80, to John the Baptist growing up. It says, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, apparently, John lived out in the desert, as many prophets did, until approximately A.D. 27, when he received his call to preach. And then he bursts on the scene as this larger-than-life Old Testament prophet. And we get a visual introduction to what he looked like in, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This was not normal. John was different. He actually looked like an Old Testament prophet. I'm sure that when Gabriel told Zechariah that their son would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, they had no idea that meant camel hair and locusts. But if you read the book of 2 Kings, that's what Elijah looked like. And it was in order to set up a deliberate contrast with the religious powers and the cultural elite. And it was part of John's call to repentance, not to follow the sinful culture, but to focus on God and seek forgiveness. 
And John took on all comers. In Matthew chapter three, he warns the common folk to share what they have with others. He tells the tax collectors to be fair, and he tells the Roman soldiers to be content. And later in that chapter, he confronts the religious uh, types. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. That's a seeker-friendly phrase. (laughs) You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist doesn't mess around. An old Puritan once said, preaching is not the art of making a sermon and delivering it by no means. Preaching is the art of making a preacher and delivering that. And that's true about John the Baptist. He didn't just bring the message, he was the message. And his words oozed from his life and gave his words tremendous power. So much so in Mark 1 we read, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what did they come to hear? What did he say? Well, John's message centered on sin and repentance, two essential elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church history has demonstrated again and again the importance about preaching about the terrible reality and consequences of sin. In the last century, the famous Scottish preacher Alexander White, W-H-Y-T-E, He did just that. One day, walking in the Scottish Highlands, a thought came to him that he thought came from God. And the message was, go on and flinch not. Go back and boldly finish the work that has been given you to do. Speak out and fear not. Make them at any cost see themselves in God's holy law as in a glass. Do you that for no one else will do it. No one else will so risk his life and his reputation as to do it, and you have not much of either left to risk. So go home and spend what is left of your life in your appointed task of showing my people their sin and their need for salvation. And then White wrote, I know quite well that some of you think me a little short of a maniac about sin, but I am not the first that has been so thought of, and I am in good company. And Alexander White was an excellent company. When the people came to John the Baptist, he first sat them down and preached about their sin. And you can imagine the scene, thousands of people sitting on the banks of the River Jordan, listening as John named their sins, warned them of judgment, and called upon them to repent. And you see how important this is? Without a real understanding of our sin, then the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ makes no sense. Because if we're good enough, then we don't need Jesus and what he did. But if we see ourselves, as the Bible says we really are, as radically sinful and totally lost, then Jesus makes all the difference. Because he becomes our only hope. The bad news about us makes way for the good news about him. You have to understand that in and of ourselves, we're not good enough. Only Christ is good enough, and he's the only hope we have. I remember once when I was in seminary, 
in New England. The dean came up to me one day and uh, he said to me, David, do you know why you're here? And I said something about getting a degree. And he said very gently, he was a very kind man, no, you are here to learn how to preach the good news to people for whom life has become bad news. I've never forgotten that. And I think that's what John the Baptist is doing. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here by 20-some years. In this text, John has just been born, and Zechariah has just found his voice. And so it's here we come to the Benedictus, the song of Zechariah. And it is in the Benedictus that once again we find the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit speaks through Zechariah. Starting again at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, the time before Jesus' birth was a long and dark time. According to this passage, it says, the people had been sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. And now it's time for the light. And drawing upon the prophets Isaiah and Malachi, Light is coming to the darkness. We see uh, that in Isaiah and Malachi, Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And then the prophet Malachi, chapter 4. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And now in the song of Zechariah, we hear, starting at uh, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, quoting from Malachi, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, quoting from Isaiah, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah now stands as a mouthpiece of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, singing God's words to those who were not only uh, present, but were able to listen. And like Mary's song that we looked at last week, the Magnificat, Zechariah's song is filled with theology and scripture. Zechariah was a priest, and his entire priestly life had been drawn from the scriptures, and now he sings almost exclusively in the words of the Old Testament. The song's been called the Benedictus from the Latin translation of the opening line 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And the title captures the sense of the song because it's not only a song of rejoicing, but since it draws so heavily on the Old Testament, it tells the story of God's work in fulfilling Old Testament prophecy in the coming of Christ. It starts with the opening line, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's the same opening line in King David's prayer when he installed his son Solomon as his successor and king, found in 1 Kings chapter 1. And it's not by accident that the first son of David and the ultimate son of David were celebrated with identical praises to God. The song starts with praises for the promises kept. Praises for the promises kept. There are several promises that are kept in this song, but it starts with understanding that what God says, God does. The promises that he made in the Davidic covenant are now to be fulfilled. Zechariah says, uh, tells us that. Now, the Davidic covenant is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's the fulfillment of this covenant that Isaiah is talking about when we read in Isaiah 9, made famous at Christmas by Handel's Messiah, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with righteousness or with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zechariah is referring to this when he sings, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So the first thing that Zechariah tells us is David's covenant, the Davidic covenant, is going to be fulfilled. The second promise that's kept here is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant is found in a long string of passages in Genesis chapters 12, 15, 17, and 22. And we're going to be getting to Genesis uh, in the new year in January. I hope you all uh, come for Genesis. We'll be there for a couple of weeks at least. But this covenant culminates in uh, Genesis 22, and there we read, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And now here, Zechariah sings, verse 72. 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zechariah is not only praising God, he's also reminding all of us that what God says, God does. Then he goes on and he, he sings about praise for the prophet. Praise for the prophet. And of course, he's thinking about his infant son, his newborn son. And all of a sudden, the reality of what the angel Gabriel has told him hits home. And Zechariah's voice breaks with emotion. He's been praying for the redemption of Israel for years. He's been looking for the return of the prophet for years. In fact, Israel has been waiting over 400 years at this point. And this little child will be that prophet, the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Zechariah can hardly get the words out, verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. This is the one that Jesus spoke about later in Luke, in Luke chapter 7. When John's messengers came to him, they asked him. They were, they were doubting. They weren't sure. John was in prison at that point. And they said, are you the one to come or should we wait for someone else? And the text says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Not John. Behold, those, are, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John may be the last Old Testament prophet, but he's also the first New Testament preacher. He's bringing the message of salvation and forgiveness in a word, the gospel. And so that's the second part of Zechariah's praise. And then finally, Zechariah has praise for the Prince of Peace. Praise for the Prince of Peace. Zechariah finishes his song by doing what John would later do, by shifting our focus from John the Baptist to Jesus the Messiah. He says, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This phrase, the sunrise, has been translated in many different ways. Some versions say the light from heaven. The old English versions use the word day spring. All give you the idea of the appearance of Christ as the light of the world. In fact, Jesus uses that name for himself in John chapter 8, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
He's the fulfillment of Malachi 4, which we read earlier. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. The apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 that he is the morning star who rises in your hearts. And in Revelation 22, the apostle John tells us he is the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And Zechariah finishes here in verse 79 by telling us that he is the one coming to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So now the stage has been set. And what comes next is probably the most famous passage in all of the Bible, Luke 2, verses 1 through 20, which we're going to get to next week. So you'll have to come back. But for now, you have to ask yourself the question, can we sing with Zechariah? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. See, it's truly a song of inspiration. If you think about it, you think about all the great philosophers of history. Socrates taught for 40 years, but his life and teaching made no songs. Plato taught for 50 years, but he did nothing to cause the human soul to blossom with life. And yet Jesus came and only lived 33 years on this earth, and he only taught for three of them. And yet his life and his teachings have inspired the souls of so many, of Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci to paint glorious scenes. Jesus inspired the hearts of Dante and Milton and John Donne to erupt in the world's greatest poetic verse. And of course, the songs, the greatest music of the ages, came from those people whose lives were touched by Christ. Haydn and Handel and Bach and Mendelssohn. All of these men composed their music to the praise of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it's been said that Jesus uh, changed Mendelssohn's music from a minor key to a major key. And Bach signed all of his musical scores, SDG, shorthand for Sola Dea Gloria, to God alone be the glory. This is a picture of what happened to Zechariah. The music of the Lord invaded his soul. And it's a music of wonder and joy and freedom when the word of God comes in power to announce that salvation is at hand. That's why the gospel of Luke is a singing gospel, resounds with the music of praise. And what we've just read is the second of four songs that appear in the first two chapters. Zechariah's song, and as I said, it's called the Benedictus, based on the Latin translation of the first phrase. There's two more songs we still have to get to in the next few weeks, the Gloria of the Angels and the Nunc Dimittis of Simeon. All songs of rejoicing. As I said last week, one preacher called these the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. And they appear only in Luke. Luke forces us to think about who I am and what God wants me to believe and to do. And he wants us to see the Jesus story is not only about him, but also about us. And these texts, particularly these songs, reveal God at work. We can see how God approaches people and reaches out in power and humility to lift us up and to bring us into his presence. 
to make us people who have a relationship with him, people the world knows as followers of Christ. Now, we often forget when we come to the Christmas story about the other special baby that's promised and delivered in Advent story, John the Baptist, the forerunner, the way maker, the prophet of the Most High, the locust-eating, camel-hair-wearing friend of the bridegroom, whose joy was his own decrease that Jesus might increase. And John's birth and life are a magnificent testimony to the ways of the gospel. And there only needed to be one John the Baptist. But there's an ongoing need for others to live and to love as John did. What better story could we write? What other story would we choose for our children than for them to be a means by which Jesus would be made known to their generation and to their culture? And Luke's a great place to start because Luke tells the story of Jesus and his grace and his cross and how Jesus died to provide salvation and rose again to bestow it upon us and will return to establish its presence over all of creation. And the church has to show what that grace and what that salvation and what that forgiveness looks like. And we have to show it in our love for God and our love for our neighbors. And Advent is a great time to start. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we lift our children and our grandchildren up to you. For the ones who don't know you yet, we ask that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus soon. Make the gospel clear and irresistibly beautiful to them. Rescue them from religion and rescue them from non-religion. We stand on your covenant promises for our children. Reveal Jesus in the most secret place in their hearts. For our kids who know you, we pray that the gospel will go deeper and deeper into their hearts, assuring them of your tender mercies and your all-sufficient grace, transforming them into the likeness of your son, freeing them for a life of loving and serving in your church and for your kingdom. Holy Spirit, we pray for ourselves the very same prayers we offer on behalf of our children and grandchildren. And during Advent, open our hearts and loose our tongues to sing your praises with new joy and delight. Guide our hearts into the ways of the gospel and to your commitment to redeem your people from the nations and to make all things new. Lord Jesus, we get excited about Christmas. We know now that this is a story not just about Zechariah, but about all of us as well. We know that you came to be the Savior of the world. And so we ask during this Advent that Christ would be exalted in our lives and in our words, and may the songs of Christmas, the stories of God's grace and the lives of people just like us, ring out during this glorious Advent season. Teach us these things. Enable us to believe these things. Give us the desire to rejoice in God our Savior. We pray this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.